Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. Great to have all of you here. We are in an extremely crazy political cycle, if you haven't noticed. And politicians are working incredibly hard to try to get their message out and to make it clear. And that's a problem. That's never, never easy to do. And that's the same challenge that they were experiencing in this next edition of our story about this one local church that we can learn and gain so much from, much more than we ever could have imagined or envisioned. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So what I'd like to ask you to do is go ahead and stand back up if you would. And I'm going to read this chapter. What I'm going to do is just read the first 12 verses. They'll set a little bit of a tone for us. And then as we walk through the passage, I'll uh, refer to some other passages in this chapter. It's chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. This is God's word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indirect, indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Father, we ask you for your light and your discernment and your wisdom as we look at a confusing and sometimes troubling passage this morning. May we as a church uh, experience that revealing of your presence and your power this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Good morning again. Well, here's what I want to do this morning now that I've given you a little bit of a taste of this chapter. And if you're a guest here for the first time, we have a very simple approach. We simply try to walk through the Bible and understand as best we can what it says and then try to make that and integrate that into our daily 
lives. That's, that's what we do here on Sunday mornings. And we've been walking through this book of 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves in the 14th chapter. And throughout this chapter, I found at least five things that God wants for the church when it gathers together. When the church gathers, there's five things, at least five things that God wants. And in the context of that, I'm going to try to, as best I can, unpack these two confusing gifts, prophesying in tongues. You may have wondered what I was talking about. Try to unlock that a little bit, and then we'll, we'll give a, you a few simple applications to what difference does this make in our lives. Okay? All right, here's the first one. First principle that I see is that gathered worship should be diverse. Gathered worship should be diverse. And I want to share this in the context of trying to understand this spiritual gift or this activity of prophesying. What is he talking about? Well, to get some understanding of this, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Or it will be on the screen behind me. And let me give you the context of these verses. They'll help our understanding of this gift. What's happening here is that Peter, the apostle, has delivered the very first sermon. And as he's delivering it, the Holy Spirit comes in a very unique way. God comes down to people. And and he fills them. And they have this very unique God encounter. And in this moment, one of the manifestations of the Spirit is that the individuals who believed spoke in a foreign language that they did not know. The Bible calls this the gift of tongues. And in some ways it symbolized it symbolized something very significant. And we find it here in this passage. In verse 17, so Peter uh, cites the prophet Joel from the Old Testament to explain what's happening. And he says, in the, in the last days... This is the church age. It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What tongues symbolized was that in the giving of the Holy Spirit that there will now be in the kingdom of God many and diverse voices speaking for God. In the Old Testament, those who spoke for God, it was very limited, very selective. The Spirit would come on an individual for maybe even a, a period of time. And that person became a spokesman for God. But it was very limited, very narrow. And now in the birth of the church, the voices for God, those who can be God's spokesmen, so to speak, becomes far greater and far more diverse. Men, women, young, old, in this coming of the Spirit. Now, The prophets in the Old Testament. So when they're writing here in the language of the New Testament, they're borrowing from what they knew from the Old Testament. 
And in the Old Testament, the prophets, when they spoke, it was equivalent with God's word. It was, you could show you many places, it could be interchanged. When the prophets spoke, if they were tested and verified, it was the same as equivalent to God's word. Many of the prophets began their messages and oracles by saying, thus says the Lord. They were a prophet. They were his mouthpiece. They were speaking for him. But now in this church age, there will be many who speak for God and speak the word of God to one another and to others. So in the prophets, it was divine disclosure equivalent with God's word. But what about prophets then in the New Testament? We see this language very often in the New Testament. Well, I want to share three different things I see about prophets in the New Testament. Number one, and by the way, you know, we tend to think of prophets as being these old guys um, wearing crazy clothes and yelling at people and doing strange things. But uh, they, they take on a little more structure and function here in the New Testament. Number one, sometimes these prophets, like in the old, sometimes they predicted the future. We see that in Acts chapter 11 with Agabus. Secondly, there was something that seems to be a little different than that. There were prophets in the local church that had an office, a function. We find that in Ephesians 4. We find that in Acts chapter 13. And these prophets were, they, they had some sort of communication gift, but it was different than a teacher. It was different than a pastor. It was different than an evangelist. Now, Getting at that specific function is really difficult. We don't, in some ways, it's, it's challenging to, to try to discern what was their specific function. Perhaps they helped give the church guidance. Perhaps they were used in that way. Perhaps they were used to help direct the church and guide the church, working with others. Um, we'll see that they were very active in the local church, in the gathered worship of the local church. But then there's a third thing that we see that doesn't seem to be related to a position or a function or predicting the future, and that is to prophesy. In verses 5 and verses 39 and in other places, to prophesy seems to be a general term used to describe what Christians do as they minister God's word to one another. And so in the Old Testament, it was reserved for one prophet to be God's spokesman. But in the New Testament, we all can become prophets, priests, and kings. And so what's going on in Corinth in this transitional era is a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion trying to figure out what does it mean now to have many and diverse voices speaking into each other and The result here was a lot of chaos, and Paul is trying to bring some balance to that chaos with these many and multiple voices. Now, let me share one little thing here that I think is important related to this, and I share this in relation to my own opinion, my own view. I'm not sure if my fellow elders share this view. I know many of my colleagues in our little family of churches, some don't share this, but it's my opinion that when they use the word prophet or prophesy in the New Testament, it is in a secondary sense. 
It is not in the same sense as the prophets of the Old Testament where the word of God was equivalent to them. In other words, it wasn't like it was inspired scripture. That's why, as we'll see in a little bit, the prophets were required to be in submission and subjection to one another. And so in my understanding, it's a secondary definition, a secondary understanding that's somewhat different than the office of prophet in the Old Testament. So this is important. So for example, if someone comes to you and says to you, you know, the Lord told me to tell you to move to Africa, or the Lord told me to tell you to marry this person, and they come to you under the pretense of being a prophet. I would seriously question that. I would seriously question that. And that happens in some church settings. The Lord spoke to me for you to do this. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. It's not infallible. Now, that's not to say, for example, that sometimes we may receive, God may work in us to speak to someone else. But we should approach it, we should approach it in that way of recognizing that, hey, I've wondered about God saying this. I wonder about God speaking to you about this. I just want to throw it out to you for your consideration and lay off that infallibility. Lay off that, I'm convinced that God told me to do this in your life language. Okay? Here's the second thing. From gathered from, from single voices to multiple voices, the second thing is communication should be crystal clear when we are in gathered worship. Paul uses this illustration of a bugle. It's very interesting. Of course, we don't understand it today. Some of you are in the military and, uh, and being in the military when there's troop movement and you've got orders to you know, go a certain direction or move a certain way. There's all this sophisticated technology telling you what to do. Well, back then, the sophisticated technology was a bugle. And a bugle gave one sort of tone for advance and another sort of tone for retreat, and it wasn't good to confuse those. That could be devastating. Chaos in war is always devastating. My goodness, some of the accounts I've read where there's chaos in war just has devastating uh, accounts. And when we're not clear in a church, it can be devastating. devastating. I read a story about the French and Indian War just to give you one other example. In the French and Indian War, William Braddock, who was the British general, the British were on our side on this one, William Braddock was not acclimated to working with the militia from Virginia, just fought in a completely different way. The British you know, wore uh, you know, red, red shirts and stood in line and you know, fought out in the open and stayed in strict military formation. The Virginia militia fought like they hunted. They you know, wore brown clothes and hid, hid behind rocks and trees. Well, they, were, they, had, they, had, uh, uh, they had gathered together. They had met these two different groups, and they were uh, moving together. They were out in an open, in a clearing, and all of a sudden they were, realized they were being ambushed. There was a semicircle around them of Indians and French in, that, were, uh, it, that were ensconced in this wooded area. Well, when they saw them, the Virginia militia immediately ran into the woods to encounter them and to attack them. And Braddock, unaware of how the militia worked, he had all of his British troops stay in formation and in line in that open field and also open-fired. You can guess what happened. Entire companies of the Virginia militia were killed by friendly fire. 
And uh, all again because there was not clear communication. This is what Paul wants here. Paul wants there to be very clear communication. And here's what was gumming up the works. What was gumming up the works was this thing called tongues. Now, again, if you've had no exposure to this, you're saying, what in the world are you talking about? Some of you who've had exposure to this know that uh, this is something that exists within certain segments of the corporate church uh, in what might be called charismatic or what might be called Pentecostal churches. Let me give you, again, just a very brief biblical history of this area because there's not really much that we can go on relative to what tongues is. I've already given you the first example. Going back to Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire were seen on these individuals in which the Holy Spirit manifested himself in the birth of the church, and they spoke a foreign language that others around them understood because other people from other countries because they were speaking in a language unknown to them. And that communicated the gospel and communicated God's reality to those who were gathered in worship during the Passover ceremony from all over the known world. Those who, those who heard that, many heard and believed. Thousands believed that God's presence and reality had come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, on that day. Many did not believe. Many did not believe. Many were skeptics. But, the, but there was a, it was a language given that, that could be understood. The next thing we see is in Acts 10, 45, and in Acts 19, what we find is that tongues continue to be given to Gentiles, non-Jews. And this helped the Jews to accept and appreciate that now Gentiles and the Holy Spirit was also given to these, to these individuals. Remember, if you were a Jew... In, in that time era, for thousands of years, Gentiles were not a part of the kingdom of God. And so God shows up with this supernatural gift that he gave them. He also gives the Gentiles to help the Jews understand, okay, wow, there's something completely new going on here. Gentiles are now a part of the kingdom of God. Now, the only other place that we find tongues really described is in this chapter. In, for, in one local church. And it seems from verses 9 to 13 that tongues were continued to be used, again, perhaps here in a, in a secondary kind of way, as a source of inspiration and as a source of guidance for the local church. Verses 18 through 19 indicate that they may have been part of a private devotional language. Again, it, we can't be 100% certain of that, but that may be the case based on verses 18 and 19. We must remember that for both the exercise of the prophets and the exercise of the gift of tongues, this local church, as all the local churches in this era, did not have the complete final scriptures to rely on, to go to for guidance and direction. And these gifts may indeed have been able to help uh, to make up that absence by providing direct guidance from the Lord to them. Finally, one last statement here about this. Verse 22 uh, it talks about the purpose of tongues. seems to be contradictory at the, a certain level, but I think Paul is speaking here in relation to the purpose of tongues 
related to non-believers. Because remember, as we'll see in a moment, people were coming into their midst, outsiders, and they were hearing them speak in tongues, and they thought, well, these people are crazy. What's going on here? These people are, are nuts. And so Paul, what he's, by quoting here in Isaiah, what he's really saying is that the purpose of tongues relative to non-believers is not so much for salvation, but really is for judgment. The citation there in Isaiah 28 refers to judgment being given. And so that was the purpose in relation to non-Christians, and therefore it was muddying up the message. Paul was very concerned that they give a clear message, not only to the believers, but also to the non-believers, the outsiders who would come in to be with them. Paul wanted the message to be crystal clear, and their exercise of the gift of tongues was muddying it up. That's why he shares that. Now, before I leave this area, let me just share a few things about today and what, what this particular church, Linworth, believes regarding this. Just a couple of things. One is, we don't believe that tongues is normative for every church or every believer. Therefore, we don't think it's essential for our growth. Uh, it's not been a part of our culture, honestly. And there's not a single command in the Bible that says speak in tongues. And as I said earlier, this topic is only dealt with, this is the only chapter outside of Acts that this topic is addressed. So we don't think it's essential. But we'd also say, neither should they be forbidden. Neither should they be forbidden. God will work however he darn wants to work. And and he's not limited by us. And if he wants to use this gift, he can. And I know that he has used this gift with various individuals. There's a, a testimony of an individual in our church who heard an individual speaking tongues in his own language, and it was a testament. It was a reason why he believed in Christ. I think our best view, we best state our view by stating Scripture, and that's found in verse 39. Paul said, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's, that captures what Linworth believes regarding this area. Don't forbid it, but also prioritize the, the, uh, the, the gifts that really provide for clear communication. Okay? How are we doing? All right? All right, number three. Number three. This, is a, this point is in very much um, consistent with the last one. Gathered worship is not only for us. It is also for non-Christians. This is something that Christians forget. Gathered worship is not just for us. Look at these interesting verses, beginning in verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed And so falling on his face, he will worship and declare that God is really among you. Wow. Wow. This is an amazing, profound passage. You know, it's a little incidental. Here we have so clearly 
laid out the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship is not just to hear a lecture. The purpose of worship is to experience God and his presence and the power of his presence. That's the purpose of worship. And look what happens for the non-Christian, and I think for us as well. It opens up the secrets of our hearts. You know how powerful it is when you've never understood the secrets of your heart? And to come into a worship setting and to have the secrets of your heart revealed to you? You know, Freud spent a whole life trying to figure this out. Psychoanalysis, imagine the money that is spent to try to figure this out, the secrets of the heart. And here the scriptures say that the secrets of the heart are revealed to us in worship. Why do I do what I do? Why do I feel the way that I feel? Why have I experienced the certain failures that I've experienced? Who am I becoming as a person? All of the aches and hurts and disappointments and longings brought to the surface when we are in the presence and power of God. And not only that, but the revelation and the reality that God is the one who can meet and address all of those secrets of our hearts, including when we feel convicted of our own moral failures, the assurance that we can be forgiven, the whispers that we can be his son and we can be his daughter. All of that happens in the context of worship. It can happen in the context of worship. We realize that only God can satisfy and we realize that you are the only one, God, that I've been searching for. I've been searching for you all along. I read a story of a, uh, a, a David uh, Clayton wrote a story. He's a pastor in the United Kingdom about a young Chinese student coming to their service, coming for several weeks. He came as a non-believer uh, with no knowledge of God, no understanding of the gospel. And after several, two to three weeks, he became a follower of Christ. And it wasn't any reason to argument that brought him to that place. It was the beauty and the experience and the power of worship, of encountering God. I have had that happen over 25 years here. That has happened to me so many times. I'll be out in the lobby or I'll be up here after service and I'm meeting with someone who, who uh, is not a Christian or someone who um, maybe has been away from the church for a long time, and they'll be in tears, or they'll be just elated with joy, and I'll say, you know, what happened? What's, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And I'm expecting them to say something about my message, how, you know, how glorious and revealing, the, how insightful the message was. And, and they'll say, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I just felt something. I, I sensed something. And I just began to weep. Now, I think in those cases, we, we do don't leave those individuals alone. We share the, 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 the truth and the content of the gospel. But there's something. Evangelism is not only an event. Evangelism is not just the work of one person. There's something powerfully embodied when we gather together as a church and Christ is in our midst. And we should never, never underestimate that power. Okay, 
And, and, and nor should we be in a, insensitive to the consideration of those that are around me on a Sunday morning. And, and, and just to give you a little bit of insight as well into what goes through my mind. Uh, it's important for you to realize that when I'm addressing various topics and addressing various subjects, I am not only thinking about you if you're a believer. I'm not just thinking about you. I'm not just looking at approaching the subject through the prism of you and what your questions are. I'm also looking at it through the prism of a person who's not a follower yet of Jesus. And and I would ask you to afford me and us grace as we do that because sometimes it will mean approaching a topic in a way that maybe you don't understand. But we're trying not only to reach you, we're trying to reach your friend. And we hope that every Sunday you have confidence to invite your friend to this place because we're trying to take seriously their questions and their needs as well. Your, your, your friend is outside of Christ. Okay, number four. Okay, here's where, here's where we get, here's where it gets sticky, all right? Gathered worship should honor the family and be sensitive to cultural norms. Okay, look at verse 20, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as also the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, there it is. <laughs> what, do we, what, do you, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Obviously, as a church, this church, we do not take that, uh, in one sense literally, in another sense we do. I'll explain here just in a moment. But there really are three responses, I think, to this, this section. One, we could simply ignore it and pretend that it's not there. But I don't think, you know, you've never wanted us to do that, and I don't think you want us to do that. Because it's a little difficult, it's a little challenging, it can feel embarrassing, at least on the surface. Um, but you've never wanted us to ignore things. Secondly, secondly, um, a more conservative reaction is some just write off chapter 11. Okay? Do you remember what we said in chapter 11? There in chapter 11, it was quite clear that women had a very active voice and a very active role in a gathered service. Well, some, just in a conservative way, just you know, say, well, we're going to go by this. And they write off what's written three chapters earlier by the same writer about women having a very engaged role. Or thirdly, we can say that Paul was wrong. We could say that Paul was wrong. And I can't get into all the arguments for that. One of the more... Um, one of the more ones that's a little more pronounced is that this text was inserted later. It was inserted later by some Jewish Christians who wanted to maintain the Jewish synagogue protocol. You know, the Jewish synagogue protocol, you know, this, this, was, this, was, a literal, this was a literal rendering of that. 
And as a matter of fact, it's important for you to realize that in the world at this day, it was this, this little picture here was also the picture of civic life, was also the picture of other religions, was also the picture of you know, political educational life. Women just were in the home. There's lots and lots of quotes by people you've heard of that say, you know, when the, when the town gathers for its, you know, discuss its civic deal, the men should be there, the women should stay at home. So there's all these dynamics happening, both extra-culturally as well as in the church. But here's the church. Here's the church of Jesus Christ putting men and women together in the same context, in the same learning community, quite radical for that day. And secondly, another dynamic we should be aware of is that they were meeting in homes. And I think this ties into what we went over in chapter 11, but I think what's very possible is that the division between husband and wife and brother and sister was being erased within the context of the church. And so people weren't sure how to relate to each other. If I'm a wife and I'm a prophet, do I relate to my husband as a brother in Christ or do I relate to him as my husband? I think that was one of the dynamics happening here. So, anyway, here's what I think is going on. Here's what I think is going on with this passage. And I think, we, again, we have to read it with chapter 11 in mind. I think what is happening is this, is that in this church, if you look at verse 29, Paul's giving some order here. Prophets were able to speak. Two or three prophets would speak. But notice, and this is one reason why I don't think it was infallible, why it was just equivalent with God's word, they all needed to be in subjection to each other. Verse 32. They all needed to be in subjection. In other words, those who were giving these prophecies, there was a process of evaluation going on with that. They were evaluating. Is this really God's mind? Is this really God's word? And I believe what was happening here is that the wives were either trying to disrupt or were shaming their husbands or dis, you know, questioning their husbands, somehow providing some sense of undercutting them or perhaps undercutting the male leaders who were presiding over that meeting and trying to give some sense of direction. I think that is potentially what was happening here. So Paul's edict to be silent is silent in that context. That when it comes to this final judgment, that should be left for these, these, those presiding over the meeting. And be sure, wives, not to undercut your husbands along the way. Again, just like, you know, is true somewhat today and goes both ways, men and husband and wife alike. But this culture, again, was particularly sensitive to this idea of wives undercutting or somehow shaming their husbands. We talked about that in chapter 11. This was a shame and honor culture, much more than ours today. And there's a sensitivity here to that happening. So I think that's what's happening here. I think Paul's concern is that the family unit not be dissolved within the church. That that family unit with the husband providing servant leadership and the wife responding to him would remain intact and be reinforced by the local church and not undercut, not undermined by what took place in the church. Okay.
Number five, how we doing? We doing all right? I'm throwing a ton out at you to think about, so please keep in mind, you can always go back, take your Bible, open it up, and listen online and try to re-digest all this. Number five, in gathered worship, Scripture should have the final say. In gathered worship, Scripture should have the final say. This crazy 2016 election cycle I referred to earlier, some of you may have heard this term that Donald Trump is referred to, and also some have said Barack Obama as well, to maybe a smaller degree, as well was this in 2008 and 2012. And that's what they call populist. Have you heard that term? Uh, Donald Trump is a populist candidate. What do they mean by that? What they mean by that is that this is a candidate who is excelling by the force and the power of his charisma and his personality. He is not so much relying on time-tested, ageless principles of wisdom as much as he's relying on the power of his own personal persuasion and the power of his own personal uh, his own personality. That's what we call populism. It's all the way back to Andrew Jackson. He was the first real populist candidate. If you didn't know it, back in the day, especially when Washington first ran, it was shameful for a president to actually uh, go out and to, to run for office. It was shameful. They didn't do it. And, of course, it's so different today. But, but Donald Trump is what, you, what, is what you'd call a populist writer. Well, the church is not to be personality-driven. The church is driven by the scriptures, by God's word helping manifest God's presence. And it's not about not to be identified or known, surrounded around a certain one or several individuals. Scripture is to have the final say. Look at what he says here in verse 36. He said, or, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you, catch this, this is amazing. The things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anybody does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What's what's he saying there? What Paul is saying is this. He's He's saying to the Corinthian church, do you get to make things up? Do you get to make up the rules? <laughs> you know, th- the Word of God only come to you guys? No. These are traditions and patterns here that I expect every church to follow. And he says, as a matter of fact, Paul says, and it seems on the surface a fairly audacious statement. He says, the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Wow. See, Paul's writings, as well as the writings of the apostles, they understood this. Their writings were writings with that sort of same authority that the prophets had in the Old Testament, that they were writing Scripture. Look at this verse, Ephesians 2.20, that's on the, on, on the screen. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, in this case, I believe the prophets is a reference to the Old Testament prophets. And they, along with the apostles, Peter, John, Paul, writers of the New Testament, they had an apostolic authority. They were speaking in the primary use of this idea of prophet. 
They were speaking as if they were speaking the words of God. And Paul said here, it's important for you to recognize, you know, and if you don't recognize this, then you're not recognized. You're not something different or better or special. This is what the word of God is saying. And we're all responsible to it. That's why we embed the scripture in everything. It's a scripture that teaches us how to love God. The scripture teaches us how to love God and to love one another. The scripture is the pattern. It's not just about an individual's personality or an individual's strength. We seek to embed the scripture in everything, and I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Okay, so those are five truths, five patterns that I think help describe and explain the New Testament church. Now, let me just real quickly give you several applications, then I'm going to quit. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Here's the application. Here's the application. We can boil it down to just a couple things. He says, Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building of the church. Look at that first phrase. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. I mentioned earlier these two kinds of churches, conservative evangelical churches, and on the other hand, you've got more emotionally expressive churches like charismatic churches or Assembly of God churches. And I think what Paul does here is he really, he's really speaking to the potential for excesses in both of them. But with conservative evangelical churches, I think we can learn from this idea. Because sometimes for us, Sunday morning service becomes really just a lecture. It's really just about maybe connecting with a few other people about fellowship. But we've learned here what really is the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship is that God might come down and we can meet with him and we can experience him. They were eager for the manifestations of the Spirit. Yeah, it was overblown and it was an excess. But I think there's a core there that Paul's affirming. When you come to church, here's your first question. When you come to church on Sunday morning, what are you expecting? What do you really want? Do you think that God might come down to us and speak to us in a profound way? Look at this quote by Tozer. Tozer said, The God of Abraham has withdrawn his conscious presence from us. And another God whom our fathers knew not is making himself at home among us. This God we have made. He's a projection of our 21st century Western individualism. This God we have made, and because we have made him, we can understand him. Because we have created him, he can never surprise us, nor astonish us, nor overwhelm us, nor transcend us. Here's the second thing. Strive to excel in building up the church. It says that when they came to church, they brought each a word, a revelation, something they could contribute. When you go to places of gathered worship like the church here, or like your life group, do you come with something to give, something to contribute, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge and and insight? a scripture, an admonition, a word from the Lord that you'd submit to others. If you're a life group leader, here's my ask of you to make this very concrete. Sometime in the next several weeks, will you cancel the agenda 
your normal agenda, and will you let your life group members know in advance, next week you're going to completely dominate the agenda. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to bring a scripture, I'd like you to bring a word, I'd like you to bring an admonition, I'd like you to bring some insight, some scripture that, you've, that God has laid on your heart to share with others. I think that could be a dynamic meeting. We'd also like, some of you know this, I'd also like to resurrect our slice of life, which is simply the members of our church coming up here on a Sunday morning and sharing three to five minutes a slice of how God is working practically in their life. That would allow us to understand and see that God is working in many and various and multiple ways, men, women, young, old. And then finally, we all have the opportunity to prophesy. We all have the opportunity to minister the Word of God to one another. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace, and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. This verse 16, I used to always think that that meant let the word of Christ richly dwell inside of me. I think it includes that. But I think the context, because of verse 15, he's not talking about the word of Christ dwelling just in me. He's talking about the word of Christ dwelling within us. And that's not just me teaching on Sunday morning. It's you ministering, counseling, teaching, encouraging, exhorting with the word of God, prophesying to one another with the power of the Spirit. That's the church at work. That's what the church was designed to be. That's what Paul is trying to capture here. Let me finish on this quote by Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb says this, We have made a terrible mistake for most of this century. We have wrongly defined soul wounds as psychological disorders and delegated their treatment to trained specialists. Now, I'm very supportive of counselors. We have some great counselors in this church, and we often recommend them. But every counselor that I know also agrees with this statement, that we've defined soul wounds as something wrong with the psyche. Damaged psyches aren't the problem. The problem is disconnected souls. What we need is connection. What we need is a healing community. And that's what we can become with the power of Christ and by the power of his spirit as we minister the word of God to encourage, console, comfort, challenge one another. This whole passage is Paul's passion and desire to make this gospel so crystal clear and not muddy it. That's what we got to do as well by the way that we live. You know, God proved he's the best communicator. He so clearly communicated to us when he told us about himself by sending his own son to live and to die and then to resurrect for us. What better communication could there be than sending not just a 
leaflet or a brochure or a tablet or an info commercial. He sent himself. He sent his own son on our behalf. Pray with me. Father, Father, in Christ's name, through the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would minister your words right where individuals need in this moment. Your Spirit gives life. And you manifest your Spirit, Father, through your words. They come by promises. They come by assurances. They come by challenges. They come by commands. And Father, whatever any individual here needs this morning, bring them that sense of your presence manifested by your word that the secrets of our heart may be opened and we could receive forgiveness, we could receive comfort, we could receive a fresh challenge that would renew our faith and give us fresh wind to sail again. Father, we entrust now these next moments, our offering, our prayers, our songs, our baptisms to you. Continue to lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening and joining our mission. For more content or to learn more about us, visit linworthroadchurch.com.